Alhambra. Yeah, we're, we're going to wait for those, uh, that music to turn down a little bit. But we're glad you guys are here um, on this cool morning. And you all know it's, it's cool to be at church. And so, yeah, cool morning, cool view. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> it's okay. I can't hear the laughter because of these ears. But you know what? Bring some joy to, uh, to our morning. Um, we're glad that you guys are not tucked in and too cozy to wake up and you guys are here ready to worship God and glorify him. So would you stand with us as we begin to magnify his name? Great things, you've done great things. 
Forever, my. 
Good morning, everyone. Yeah, welcome to Church in the Valley. We are just so glad that you are joining us here, whether that's online or here in person in the courtyard this morning. Really is a beautiful kind of fall-esque morning here for Southern California. Um, so I, my name is Jonathan Rickert. I'm a part of our uh, Sunday mornings teams here at Church in the Valley. And I just want to let you know about some of the things we have going on here at CIV. Now, first of all, if you could pull out the program that you have inside that program is a connection card. We'd actually really appreciate it if everyone here could go ahead and fill out that connection card. Um, you can write your name, uh, your email address, and really just any information that you feel comfortable sharing with us. If you flip that card to the back side, you'll notice that there's some sections about how we can be praying for you. We just really love to hear for you, from you and know how we can be praying for you during your week. Now, at the end of service, you can go ahead and just drop that connection card as long as any recycling in the buckets around the uh, courtyard out here. Now, if you're a guest with us here this morning, there's a couple sections on that connection card. One is how you heard about us here at Church and Valley. If you could just mark that, that's really just helpful for us to know how we can be letting the community know about what's going on here. Now, also, if you're a guest, we have a special gift for you. It's a book called How Good is Good Enough. And so I really just encourage you to pick that up over here at our resource table. That's really just a gift to thank you for joining us that you can take home and read or give to a friend or relative. Uh, so please take one of us, one of those. Now, if you don't have one of our programs, you can also go to civ.com, um, sorry, civalhambra.com slash Sunday, and our connection card is on that as well. Now, what we have going on in church right now is our C groups, our community groups, are just going to start this week. And community groups are just a great way to come and get to know other people here at Church in the Valley, as well as get to know God better. And groups really are such an important way in which we grow in our relationship with God. So I really encourage you, if you have not signed up for a group, there is a catalog in your program. Please look at that. I really encourage you to sign up for a group. It'll be a true joy and blessing for your life. I know for me, it's a real time of refreshment getting to meet with other people and study the word of God with them. And if you're a part of Christian Challenge or another student ministry, I really just encourage you to find one of the life groups, one of the groups that are going on on campus, and to join that as well. So again, groups are starting this week. It's not too late to sign up. Please come join one. Check it out. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us real quick, and then we're going to sing another song. God, we just thank you for the opportunity to be here, just the opportunity to learn from your word, God. I pray that you just open up our hearts to hear from you, that you'd speak through John this morning, Lord, and uh, may you just really help us to deal with the areas that are going on in our lives and really just hand them over to you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
God, we thank you for your great love for us, for your magnificence. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart could truly know who you are. Yet you reveal yourself to us through your Son and through your love for sinners like us. So how great, how great are you, Lord? We thank you. As we look at your presence today, speak through John into our hearts. May all we do be pointed towards you to lift your name on high. We love you, Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Welcome, John, up. You guys have a seat. All right. Good morning, everybody, and happy Sunday. Lovely to see you this morning, to be together, praising the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Can you bring that up a little bit? That's great. Thank you. Yes, so as, as was said, we're going to be talking about the presence of God this morning. And out of our passage from Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 to 17, if you're a visitor today, you haven't, you've missed a couple of weeks, then we're working through in our Sunday mornings at this point, uh, Exodus chapters 32 through 34, and we're right now starting on chapter 33, and this is a fabulous passage, at least I love, I've loved this passage for so many years, it always speaks to me, and as I was preparing for this week, it just spoke to me again, and uh, the Lord, I think, really, uh, you know, this has given us such a rich passage uh, that uh, was so powerful in Israel's life, and is in our lives. Now, the title then for this morning, The Presence of God. And so before we go any further, let's just ask that question, what do we mean by the presence of God? Can we define it? Well, it's very hard to do so, uh, but, uh, and the, but the passage actually will help us. As we work through this, we're going to try to understand the presence of God in terms of what this passage is about. And, uh, but the question, of course, is how can you talk about the presence of God? Uh, well, of course, God is everywhere. We know that, right? And uh, we, theologians talk about God being omnipresent, meaning he's present everywhere. And the scripture seems to affirm that. Psalm 139, for example, where can I f flee from your presence? You know, if I go and hide over here, you're there. If I go and hide up there, you're there. Wherever I flee to run away from God, he's there, got there before me. And so God is everywhere. So is there something, however, uh, more to say about the presence of God than that? And there is. And this passage is talking about Israel and God saying to them, I'm not going to be with you. And then Moses interceding with God to change his mind, to, to, that he would in fact be with them. What does it mean then for God not to be with someone, to not to be present? How's, how that, how's that even possible? And so we want to talk about that. Is the presence of God a feeling? You know, I met uh, someone a few years ago who, whose whole Christian life was shaken up 
her, her, her faith, her hope, her sense of being, doing the right thing was totally shaken because she wasn't feeling God's presence. And she just thought, I really must feel the presence of God for this to be authentic, for this to be real, for my faith in Christ to have meaning. And we were trying to encourage her that the presence of God can be, can, can produce a feeling, but it isn't a feeling, right? A feeling is yours. If you have an emotion or a feeling, that's not, that, that's you, right? You're feeling it. Our feelings are our responses to things that happen. And so sometimes then when we're not feeling it, this is not because God is not dumping feelings on us because we're not feeling it. It's, we're not responding in, the way, in some way, and that's us rather than God. Is the presence of God a vision? When I was a young Christian and I went off to do some missionary training and uh, people were talking about seeking the Lord and seeking God and how important it was to seek Him, to find Him and that to experience Him. And so in my quiet times, and, and, and uh, I would uh, have my quiet time in my car, uh, and so I would sit in the car and I'd be seeking the Lord. And what I really thought should happen was an to have a vision of Jesus. I thought, that's, that's it. That's what I need. I, because I'd read these books about people who'd experienced God in powerful ways and had visions of Jesus, and I thought, that's like, that's the ultimate. That's how I know I really, you know, arrived spiritually or something. And, and so that's, that's what I'm, we're all wanting and aiming for. And so I would spend a long time seeking God and, and come away disappointed because I hadn't seen Jesus appear in the car with me. And is that the presence of God? Of course, now I discovered later on that actually all that prayer did me good. All that time I spent talking to the Lord, listening to for Him, reading my Bible, it was all good. I, and I was in the presence of God, I just didn't see Him. And so what is it? The biblical metaphors we're going to be looking at today talk about uh, the presence of God or being before God in the Hebrew when it says the presence of God, of course, the Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic and a couple of books, but it was, uh, it was in Hebrew where it says the presence of God, it's literally the face of God. And so, for example, in, in 1 Samuel, it says Samuel, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord and literally would be translated, literally probably not the best way, woodenly would be translated before the face of the Lord. And so to be in the presence of the Lord means to be before his face, meaning perhaps standing before him as a subject is allowed to come and stand before the king. And the presence of the Lord in this passage has got to do with, with whether God is going to go with Israel up to the promised land. Whether he's going to 
walk with them, to travel with them, to be with them in their journey. And so these metaphors, there's a couple of these metaphors going on. One is in the presence of God, meaning coming before him as, a, as our king and our Lord, allowed into his presence to talk with him and listen to him, to receive his commands and to be in that relationship. And but also the presence of the Lord in this passage has got to do with God going along with us. And of course, we can only use metaphorical language, right? When we're talking about this kind of thing, because God is invisible. And, uh, we, and so what does it mean that he is present? But it does seem to say, be very clear in the Bible that despite the fact that God is everywhere present, he's also present in a different way in certain times and places. And meaning he's walking with us, living with us, living among us, and us coming before him into his, into his presence, into his courtroom, before his face, and being in his favor. So the presence of God perhaps means that place, again, that's a metaphor again, isn't it? The place of blessing and favor. In Psalm 16, 11, it says this, Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's fantastic. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And of course, we know what Jesus said at the end of Matthew chapter 28, at the end of the book of Matthew, after giving them the great commission and to go and make disciples of all nations. And he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And, and that's perhaps the, that metaphor of working with us as we go and do his ministry and his service in taking the gospel to the nations. You know, the church has had many arguments over the presence of God. The, theologians have written whole books backwards and forwards uh, over the exact way in which Christ is present as we take the Lord's Supper, as we, as we have that meal together. You know, and, and in what sense is he present uh, in and or through uh, or around the bread and the cup and, uh, or at the gathering of believers? Uh, it's, this is important stuff to understand. Now, in our context here, We've, we keep reminding us, but remember that from Exodus 19 and 20 onwards, God has made a covenant with Israel, including giving them the Ten Commandments as their covenant responsibilities to the God who has rescued them from slavery and out of Egypt. Now they're in the desert in Mount Sinai, uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he's made a covenant with them, and he's given them instructions on how to build a particular tent, or tabernacle, it's going to be the place where God is going to be particularly present with them for the rest of their existence. And this tabernacle is very detailed. It's full of instructions, all these instructions. You know, this is how you make the curtains. This is how, you, how high the poles are. This is what you're going to cover it with. Here's the kind of artwork you're going to do. Here's, here's the, the things you put in the tabernacle. 
uh, here's the table and the altar and the candlestick and the, the offerings of bread and, and even the bread that's put before the Lord uh, is called the bread of presence because it's acknowledging uh, the presence of God in the tabernacle. So there was this elaborate design given to Israel before our passage, just before our passage, of how they're to come into God's presence, how God is going to be present among them. And then they go off and try make God make a God in, in an image that they design. They just, they just make an idol and start worshipping it and say, this is your God, or these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so they want God that they can see and touch and feel, and they make an idol. And this is horrendous disobedience to the God who said, you shall not make idols, you don't make images, you don't worship any other gods. And so they disobey after, right after being told, here's how I'm going to be present among you permanently. And they go off and, and, and worship an idol. And then there's judgment upon them. In fact, God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe this lot out. And I'm going to make you into a new na a nation to be my, my people. And Moses said, please don't, God. What will people think? And he says, oh, okay. And he changes his mind. And, and so that's the power of intercession and it's the power of God's mercy. But then as Moses comes down the mountain and uh, sees the idolatry of Israel and their, the way they've got out of control and he breaks those first tablets of the Ten Commandments and uh, there's, a, there's a judgment scene. We talked about this last week where uh, 3,000 Israelites are killed by the sword and then there's a plague upon them sent by God and all of this is a sign of judgment but it's also uh, you know the, the point is that even though God's not going to wipe them out entirely it doesn't mean there are no consequences for their sin and so but we see therefore the mercy and the judgment or justice of God and that's kind of our context before we get into our passage so they just uh, finished this plague and which probably would take us some time uh, for that to sort of work work its way through the population we know what plagues are about these days so now we come then to our first part of our passage Exodus 33 and we'll start off with first verses 1 to 6 and the, sub the subtitle here the promised land without the presence of God the Lord said to Moses Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. 
So the good news here is that they're going to have the promised land despite their idolatry. The, the, the very thing that God had brought them out of Egypt to have, which was to go through the desert and have their own land at last. Rather than to be slaves in a foreign land, they were going to have their own property, their own farms, their own homes, their own territory as, as a people. And they were going to have the promised land. And that is good news. This is a renewal of the promise which had been made several times already to them. From the very first time when God spoke to Moses, you know, to go to Egypt, uh, sorry, go go back into Egypt and speak to the people of Israel and tell them that God had come, was coming to rescue them. He'd heard their cry. So this is good news. They were going to have the promised land, the promises of God. And an angel was going to go before them to do this. And by the way, uh, that's part of the promise already. Back in Exodus 23 and verse 20, 23, 20, God said, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Shows you how powerful angels can be where one angel can do this right so God is going to send an angel and that's part of the promise already and so when he says this it's a renewal of that promise it's a wonderful thing but he says I'm not coming with you because I can would consume you because you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. They would burn up. They would be dead if God would come with them because they're a stiff-necked people. They have been rebellious, stubborn, disobedient, doing their own thing. They were going to have the promised land, but without the presence of God. Notice again, in our, and we, if you remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, where God says here to Moses in verse 1, the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's that ongoing rhetoric or these little going backwards and forwards here. Moses said, no, you brought them up. And, you know, and, and so it's quite interesting. But this is God, in a sense, giving them what they need at one level, but distancing himself from them. I'm not going to be with you. I'm not going to walk with you. I'm not going to go up among you. You're not going to have my presence. They can have the promises of God without the presence of God. Now that's rather interesting. It tells us a number of things. It tells us, first of all, that the presence of God can be dangerous. The presence of God can be dangerous. I'm not going to go among, up with you, he says, among you, lest I consume you on the way. Wow. The presence of God is the presence of the holy God. The presence of God is the presence of the holy God. You know, as we often say to people rather glibly, don't worry, the Lord's with you, or something like that. 
maybe we should sometimes say to people, worry, the Lord's with you, <laughs> right? The presence of God brings joy, as we saw in, the, in Psalm 16, but it also brings conviction. It brings judgment. It brings, in a sense, a threat to our selfishness, a threat to our disobedience, a threat to our willfulness to do our own thing, a threat to our way of life. Because the presence of God and human sinfulness and wickedness and selfishness don't go together. Those things don't go together. You know, in the book of Genesis, in, in, we, we read there in the early chapters how God was, used to walk in the Garden of Eden with them. And then after Adam and Eve had sinned, after they'd eaten the fruit that they were told not to eat, in verse 8 of chapter 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard God walking, they were going to be in the presence of God himself, and their response was what? To hide themselves, to hide themselves. You know, it's interesting that human arrogance and sinfulness, human disobedience, in a sense, doesn't want the, the presence of God, naturally speaking, right? Most, most of the time, if we said, really want to live in the presence of God, we're going to have to ask ourselves, is that what we really want? Do we really want to live in the presence of God? If, as if God was looking over your shoulder at everything that you're doing or listening to every word that you say, by the way, he is, but at least he can see it and he can hear it, right? But listen, do you really want to live in the presence of God? I hope your answer is yes. But it's a, it's a yes that remembers that this is the Holy Spirit who is the presence of God among us. You know, Jacob met the Lord at, at a place called Peniel, and he, he called the place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He knew somehow. This is Genesis 32 and verse 30. Genesis 32, verse 30. He knew somehow that for, to meet God face to face is dangerous. Maybe even deadly. And yet his life was spared. And so he was celebrated and he, and he worshipped the Lord. This presence of God is rather a curious thing. It can be dangerous or certainly threatening for the, for the stubborn and hard-hearted people of whom I've often been one. You know, one time we were doing a, uh, a kind of Christian worship march through a city in England called Exeter. And we, we gathered a bunch of local churches together and there were hundreds of people we're going to march for Jesus through the, through the town. And so we uh, got permission, and we had all these Christians from all different churches gathered together, got our banners, the Jesus banners and everything, and we, we all just, with all, all the families and kids, and we just marched through singing songs, worshiping the Lord, and praying for the city. And 
one of those times when, you know, I talked about the presence of God not being a feeling, but I, we could feel it, you know. There was a, a sense of the presence of God in that city as we were worshipping the Lord together. About just after this had happened, after we'd finished our march, I was walking back through the main street of the city with a friend of mine, one of the local church leaders we were working with there, and we were just chatting, and, but you, you know, this presence of God was strong among us still. There was a, a young man came up to us dressed in orange robes with a shaven head. He was a Hare Krishna follower, and uh, he was... Uh, he wanted to sell us something. He had some incense sticks or something. He was trying to sell us. He said, you know, would you like one of these? And, and, and we had those experiences where both of us came and said exactly the same words at the same time. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but both of us said exactly these words, no thank you, we're Christians. So we said that. It's not that we don't want to, we're not, we're not trying to be unfriendly. We just don't want to buy... The, you know, his jostics to make offerings to his deity. And so we said, no, thank you, we're Christians, together at exactly the same time. At which point, this young man literally turned, took fright, turned around and ran away down the main street, orange robes flapping in the breeze as he ran in terror from two, fair, honestly, fairly mild men saying, no, thank you, we're Christians. Something about the presence of God is a threat to human sinfulness and idolatry. But, and so to, to, as a kind of corollary to that, the absence of the Lord in this passage is going to be an act of love and mercy. The absence of the Lord is going to be an act of love and mercy. This is why God says to them, I'm not coming with you. Not because he despises them, can't stand them, thinks they're horrible. Not because he wants to judge them, but because they're so unholy. And so it's actually better for them not to have the presence of God, is what he's saying. Right? I'm not going to come with you because I'd probably burn you up. I'd probably consume you. Wow. And then he says, so I've got to think about what I'm going to do with you, right? Take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you, he says. Interesting. So the absence of the Lord is here going to be an act of love and mercy. Now, that doesn't mean it's preferable, but it means that when God departs from someone, that's an alternative to killing them, right? <laughs> Which is what would have happened to them in their unholiness. You know, for God to be with us, for God to be with us is, a, is an incredible thing. And it's not automatic. He's with as the Bible says, those of a broken and contrite spirit. He's with the humble heart. He's with the repentant spirit. See, because, look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. 
right? The absence of the Lord may be a temporary reprieve from judgment, but it is not a good thing. The absence of the Lord is a horror and a grief. It's a horror and a grief. It's a disaster that requires a response of mourning, of humbling and repentance. The absence of the Lord is a horror and a disaster and a grief. If you are not walking and living in the presence of God, you're not living how God intended you to live, how He how he created you, what he created you for. He, always, he created us always to be walking in relationship with him, in his presence always. He created us to walk with him, to know him, to, to, to come before his face, to know his favor. But it's not automatic. But it's what you're created for. And if that's not happening, if you're not walking in his presence and knowing his presence, that's not a good thing. That's a disaster. That's something to mourn. That's a horror. See, when they take off their jewelry and their ornaments here, that's a sign of mourning. They're going into mourning as if a death had happened. They lost someone because God is not going to be among them anymore. He is saying, I can't be with you. You can have the promises. You can't have me. You can have the promises. You can't have me. You know, in Psalm 51, which is one of those lament psalms, particularly a confessional psalm, where, where David is repenting of his sin and confessing his sin, he says to the Lord, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, Psalm 51, 11. Now, why would he say that to the Lord? Well, what happened to Saul? The king before him had rebelled, had disobeyed God, had gone his own way, and God had withdrawn his presence from Saul. And David's saying, don't let, please don't that happen to me. That's why I'm confessing my sin. If God is far away, guess who moved first? God withdraws from people because we withdraw from Him. Good news is, as we draw near to Him, He draws near to us. That's what James tells us. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. If you humble yourself. You know, his church history is full of stories of revival. Where, and one of the signs of, that sometimes happens in revival is a very strong sense of the presence of God in a city. And, uh, you know, I was reading about the revival in the, in the Hebrides, the islands off the west coast of, northwest coast of Scotland in, in the 50s. Uh, and... Uh, there was a man called Duncan Campbell that wrote this book about his experience in that revival. So powerful. When the Spirit of God fell upon the Hebrides after people had been praying, a small group of believing women had been praying for years, 
and this revival hit the Hebrides, the, the, the presence of God was so powerful on the streets, what would happen? People would just drop where they were on the street in repentance and, con- and, and conviction of sin, start repenting, start confessing, coming to Christ, just wherever they were on the street because of the presence of God. Right before chapter 32 of Exodus, God had been giving them the, the plans for the tabernacle. The, and the tabernacle was there, the, was going to be where God was going to be present with them. But in the tabernacle system, there was a whole series of sacrifices. They had to approach God reverently. They had to come to him with the blood of animals and things that they had sacrificed and the offerings they'd made. The priests had to wear certain garbs, certain clothing. It all had the great symbolism, of course. But this relationship with God was going to be enacted through this system of sacrifice because it could happen no other way. There was no other way that God could be among them other than through this because of their sin. And so they had a system worked out where they were going to be able to experience the presence of God in their midst. This is, of course, pointing us to Jesus himself, the sacrifice for sins once and for all. The fact that we don't, you know, kill a lamb or a bull or something every Sunday here Uh, you know, as a sort of graphic demonstration of the cost of sin and the need for sacrifice uh, and for atonement doesn't take away from the significance of what it means to approach God or or for him to approach us. In fact, the fact that, that because of Jesus' sacrifice, that's even greater reason to recognize the cost of the presence of God. Let's move on to our next passage, verses 7 to 11. Uh, And this will title this Up Close and Personal. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And and by the way, this is a different tent from the tabernacle, which they haven't yet built, which is also called a tent of meeting. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Notice here that the people of God are now worshipping, but they're worshipping from a distance. Moses met the Lord outside the camp in the tent of meeting. The presence, and that's because the presence of the Lord was not in the camp. God had said, I'm not going to be among you. To find God, you had to leave the camp and go to a tent that he'd, and it was symbolically powerful that Moses had pitched this other tent outside the boundaries of Israel's encampment. And he would go out there to meet with God because 
God had said, I'm not coming in that, I'm not going to be in that lot among you, otherwise it would be deadly. And so other people who sought the Lord, how did they seek the Lord? They had to go outside the camp and go to this tent of meeting. And notice that when the people saw Moses coming, they had a, a powerful, visible demonstration of God's presence outside the camp. The cloud would come down on that tent, and then they would all stand at the entrance of their own tents and worship. And that's good. That's entirely appropriate. It's just from a distance. It's just from a distance. Are we satisfied with other people entering God's presence and seeking His face on our behalf? Are we satisfied with watching others worship and know God's presence? Or, and, and, and knowing Him face to face and hearing His voice? Or do we want to be one of those who join Moses outside the camp and go to that tent and seek God also for ourselves? Do we want to be someone who doesn't just worship God from a distance? From a distance. Who can see that God is there somewhere, who understands that we should worship Him and is content to worship from your location, seeing Him far off. We need, I think, to long for His presence. We need to long for His presence. I do. And any sin, of course, or impediment there is, is going to get in the way. And that's why we need, as we come into His presence, it's, it's so often we find ourselves being convicted of sin. I was in a worship time once and uh, trying to worship, you know, hands in the air, just trying to I shut, just trying to worship the Lord, and all of the time, all I could think about was that guy across the room, the other side of the, of, the, of the hall, that I had said something, you know, I had, I'd, I'd made an insulting comment to him or something. I'd said something was wrong in, in a meeting that I was in with him. It was kind of offensive, and I said, said something. All I could think of was, I'm guilty, and there he is. I'm trying to worship God. He's worshiping God over there and I'm guilty. So I had to put, put, bring my arms down, walk across during the worship time, find this friend of mine actually, and say to him, look, this is what happened in that meeting on Wednesday, and I, I'm, I, I repent. I, can, can I, I've confessed, can I, and I ask your forgiveness. I was so wrong to do that. He forgave me graciously, and I was able to go back, and then I could worship the Lord. This tent of meeting was a temporary measure with the intermittent presence of God. When Moses came along, God turned up to meet Moses. The tabernacle was going to be a tent in the middle of the, peop of the people with the permanent presence of God. In chapter 40 of Exodus, it says in verse 38, for the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys 
That's what's going to, that's the good news. That's coming for Israel. And the tent was put right in the middle of the camp because in Numbers 2 and verse 2, it says the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. God was going to be visibly present in their midst through the tabernacle and in the tabernacle and they camped around it. That's the kind of picture, the presence of God in the people of God. And of course, the New Testament says we, are, we, the church is the temple of God because of the Holy Spirit dwelling among us. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, those, those are people in that context gathered for, to enact church discipline, but it's, it, it's the presence of God among us is what the, the goal is. Moses meets God up close and personal, right? The people worship from a distance, but by contrast, Moses talked with God face to face. We already talked about this a few weeks ago. We looked at Numbers chapter 12 and Moses as, as, a, as a prophet. The presence of God is both corporate, we meet him as we gather, it's also personal. And so you can meet and experience his presence, know his presence, walk in his presence as an individual as well as as a group. That's because you personally are also a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit along with us as a church. F the final part of our passage then, verses 12 to 17. Our title here is, the distinguishing mark of the people of God. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name and have also found favor. You've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God's presence here is an act of grace. He says to Moses, or Moses quoted God to God, you said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. The word favor there in the Hebrew, chain, means grace, favor. God, Moses asks God for God's presence on the basis of God's grace, on the basis of his favor to Moses on the basis, and of course, on the basis of God's covenant that Israel would be his people. Look what he says in verse 13. 13. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. <laughs> is this little thing going still. God's presence is an act of grace. And he asks to know the ways of God that he might know him. 
that he might continue to find favor with the Lord. By the way, this prayer is answered. How do I know that? Because in Psalm 103, verse 7, Psalm 103, verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Psalm 103, verse 7. That's interesting. And the kind of parallelism there in Psalm 103, 7, he made known his ways to Moses, he made known his acts to the sons of Israel. In a sense, there's a kind of saying the same thing, but they're not quite the same thing. Right? Moses asked God to know his ways. Israel knew the acts of God. Moses, however, knew more than the acts of God. He knew the ways of God. He understood not just seeing what God did, but why God did them and how he was to live, to be walking with God in his ways. That's the place of grace. God's answer, by the way, to this prayer, God basically says yes to Moses. He says, his presence will go with you, he says, but you here is singular. I'm going, to get, I'm going to go with you. My presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you, Moses, rest. That's why Moses keeps praying. In verse 15 to 17, so he says, don't bring us up from here without you. Moses does not want the promised land without the presence of God. He would rather not have the promises of God, the promised land, if that means not having the presence of God. That's the question for us, one of the questions for us today, right? Are we satisfied with experiencing the benefits of God? Or do we actually want God? Do we want the presence of the Lord? Do we want the Lord himself, or is it just what he gives us? Are we serving him just for what he gives us? You know, salvation, joy, happiness, you know, love. What, are we serving him for his answered prayers, his provision, his protection, his salvation, his peace, the benefits? Or are we serving him for who he is, not just for what he gives us? Do we want the promises only? And there's nothing wrong with those promises, the good promises. But do we want God himself, the presence of God? Moses is saying, if you're not coming, I don't want to go, right? If it's not with you, Lord, I don't want these promises without you. I don't want this land without you. He doesn't want the promised land without the presence of God. God's presence is, this, is not only an act of grace, it is a sign of grace, right? He says, how else will people know that we're different? Right? We read that. In verse 16, God's presence is the sign of his favor on Moses and the people. Moses keeps praying until the people are incorporated in this promise of God's presence. And then he prays that he might know God. God will answer this, but he, if in his response, God affirms one more important thing than knowing, than us knowing God. That's, that is that God knows us. That's, of course, in New Testament, it says that in a couple of places. It's important to know God. It's even more important that he knows you. 
meaning the kind of relationship, not just knowing about, but knowing someone, knowing God. God's presence is an act of grace. It is also a sign of grace. God's presence is what makes his people different. What makes this gathering different from any other gathering of people, you know, on Sunday morning, people playing in, in, a, in a soccer club, people in a, a car club meeting on Sunday morning. Uh, you know, what makes this particular group different from any other group on the face of the earth? What makes us, as the people of Jesus, different? It's, it's only this, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit among us. That's the distinguishing mark of the people of God. It is the presence of God, is the distinguishing mark of the people of God. That's what makes us different, if we are different. Just to conclude then, Israel was returned to the presence of the Lord through Moses' intercession. And of course, the tabernacle then becomes built from chapter 35 onwards as the permanent place of God's presence in Israel. We, not just Israel, but we, the nations, are invited to God's presence through Jesus. As Psalm 100 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. All the nations are invited, even in the Old Testament, to the presence of God. Hebrews talks about the same way, that Jesus is our high priest, the Son of God, understands our life. He's lived our life, yet without sin, even though he was tempted. Verse verse 16 of Hebrews 14, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has opened the door, has given us access into this grace in which we stand. Seek his presence as Moses prayed, not just for yourself, but for others too. In Psalm 105, verse 4, he says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence. Continues, 105, verse 4. The Bible begins and ends with God's presence in, in Genesis as God is present there walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. It ends with God's presence in the city, the new Jerusalem, as God himself lives with his people and they need no temple because he is there. And the Bible is centered on the presence of God with us, Jesus, God becoming a man, walking among us, living among us, present on earth as a human being who lived our life, died a human death, was raised to life and will come and will come back again as Lord of all. This is the presence of God, the distinguishing mark of the people of God. Let's pray. You know, maybe today, just if you know of anything that's really come between you and God, 
that's standing in the way of you enjoying, approaching, coming into his presence, his walking with you. If you know of that, can I encourage you just to talk to the Lord about that right now, confess it, repent of it, find forgiveness. It's amazing in this passage how quickly God answers Moses' prayer and says, okay, I'm going to come with you. He wants for us to experience, to know, to be in his presence. He wants, that's his goal for humans. And it's the beginning of the Bible. It's the end of the Bible. It's the center of the Bible. God to be with us. It's an incredible joy and a privilege and an amazing blessing that God is willing to do that. Let us approach him now by faith, the throne of grace, approach through the blood of Jesus and recognize that God, the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell among us, to dwell in us and among us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. take some more time to reflect or to fill out your connection card or anything else uh, you can take the time now on waters and you calm the raging sea you command the highest mountain 
to fall upon their knees. You're the one who welcomes sinners, and you open blinded eyes. You restore the brokenhearted, and you brought the dead to life. Getting all our sins, you remember all your promises. You are amazing, more than amazing. Than in the 
is how amazing you are. That words fail us to describe your glory. Words fail us to describe your grace, how you've forgotten our sins. You've washed us as white as snow through your unending mercies and your abundant grace toward us. We thank you that your presence is with us. We pray that as we walk through our weeks and through our lives, that your presence would continue to stay with us and that we would live in that presence, honoring you and worshiping you and with our whole beings, not just with our lips, and that your presence would be pleased to dwell with us. We love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Stand and sing with us last song. Did you feel the mountains tremble? Did you hear the oceans roar? When the people rose to sing of Jesus Christ, the risen one. Did you feel? Did you feel the people tremble? Did you hear the singers roar? When the lost began to sing of Jesus Christ, the saving one. And we can see that God, you're moving a mighty river through the nations, and young and old will turn to Jesus.
hear the oceans roar when the people rose to sing of Jesus Christ the risen one. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you guys for coming. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. But you love me enough to pursue.